What's happening in this industry, that's what I have observed in my 20 years of life, working in New York City, is completely biased system against the taxi drivers. The reason behind is this, all the administration knows that 99% drivers are immigrant in this industry. And city knows very well, everybody's record in there, in the Taxi and Limousine Commission, knows very well who has what, what kind of status they have. And that's why they are abusing them, they are using them by putting new regulations every day every day putting new regulations. Welcome to the Working Class Heroes podcast. I am your host, Leah Ramirez, and this is episode two. In episode one, Carlos and Julian reported on the crisis in the New York City taxi industry. They told us about what taxi drivers consider a war over the future of the industry. This is a war between taxi drivers and app companies like Uber and Lyft. Immigrant communities are on the forefront of this war, making up a majority of the driver workforce. On October 1st, 2018, another immigrant driver committed suicide. Today, advocates are holding a vigil for a New York City Uber driver who committed suicide two weeks ago. 58-year-old Fausto Luna is the seventh worker in the New York City taxi industry to kill himself this year. Back in August, the city, of course, as you might know... Fausto Luna was the first Uber driver to commit suicide following the suicides of several black and yellow car drivers. Luna was born and raised in the Dominican Republic and an Uber driver since 2013. New York City taxi drivers haven't always been immigrants, but beginning in the 1980s, the taxi labor force dramatically shifted from a largely native-born workforce to one where less than 10% are native-born. Even though New York City has always had a large immigrant community, they have largely been seen by the city elites as a community to exploit, scapegoat, or use and abuse for their own selfish gains. In this episode, Carlos and Julian are reporting back on the challenges these immigrant workers face in their fight against Uber, Lyft, and the TLC. We stepped out of the train on 86 and Lex at midnight. This normally busy commercial area was dead quiet at this time of night. We walked four blocks and came to a diner on York Avenue. We stepped into the diner and we took a booth at the back by one of the large windows facing the street. We had chosen this diner because it was right by a taxi relief station, which are hard to come by in the city. The driver that we were meeting, Muhammad Ali, was actually part of episode one, where you heard him speak about the medallion and his conditions driving as a lease driver. We had met Ali at 250 Broadway, where the New York Taxi Workers Alliance was organizing a lobbying effort to put pressure on the city council to take some action around the plight of yellow cab drivers in the face of Uber's growth. Ali was in that room with us where that driver let out that rant over his working conditions. 
Even though Ali drives long hours in his yellow cab, he still made it a priority to come to city council and let them know what they've been dealing with. We had been sitting in the restaurant for about 10 minutes when Ali's car pulled up into the rest area. We packed our stuff and we stepped out. We greeted Ali, thanked us for his time, and he invited us inside of his taxi cab. Me and Julian stepped in and we began the interview. Um, it's 1242, uh, May 8th, and I'm speaking to... What's your name, please? Muhammad Ali Avan. Right, thank you. Um, so, Muhammad, I'm just going to ask... I'm just going to start by asking you, um, how did you get into driving a taxi? I started because I entered the United States illegally. So I was a legal alien for a very long time, so I was doing all this kind of uh, nerdy job and all kind of odd jobs. And soon as I became legal, so I, I don't have any qualification or anything else or any other skill, particular skill, so I can do anything else. So my friend suggested me to learn driving and start driving yellow cab because back then, in, I'm talking about 21 years ago, they needed driver, nobody wanted to drive yellow cab specifically in the daytime. Everybody wanted, all the drivers were available, they wanted to drive at night shift. Ali told us how he came to find himself in the U.S., as well as what his reasons for immigrating were. As I say, like, I just jump off from the boat, literally. No, no, I'm not joking. I just used to work on a ship. So when I was like a slave sailor on a ship, you know, the Greek shipping company back then, they used to hire the people from third world country and give them like 20 cents per hour and like for on basically <laughs> food and like very cheap labor. And, and back in home, the situation was so bad, like there wasn't, plus like, I don't have any formal education. I just, I'm a high school runaway. So there wasn't much there. So I just spent over there and I, I paid to get that slavery job. <laughs> I did five years, about four ships I did, five and a half years more than that. And finally last ship came to the America and from Cuba, went like all over and then finally came to Cuba and from Cuba we weren't know we were going to America and America we came and I just, I decided okay this is it. So I just jumped off from the ship, I took one other person with me, older person. All I have is $27, an album of my all friends and family album and that's it. And I just enter in America, like, you know, promised land. <laughs> the Taxi and Limousine Commission shows that less than 10% of the driver workforce is born in the U.S. Immigrants are a decisive majority in every sector of taxi, with the top four countries being represented from Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and the Dominican Republic. But why is that? Ali's story is pretty dramatic, and it's common among New York City taxi drivers and what brought them to this job can be traced to similar conditions among many of them. It's a combination of both worsening conditions at home and great opportunity abroad that brings many immigrants into the U.S. This is why most people who get into a cab in New York City do so with an immigrant driver. In fact, over the past generation, taxi drivers have been portrayed in the popular imagination as immigrants, largely as South Asian immigrants. This matches the current reality of those hailing cabs in New York City. Back at the beginning of the taxi industry, in the early 1900s, most drivers were Jewish, Italian, and Irish, along with a few other U.S.-born white drivers. So movies and popular representation of these drivers at the time reflected that reality. 
James Cagney, an Irish actor, for example, starred in the 1932 movie Taxi as a cab driver, which created a once famous scene of his use of Yiddish to speak to a Jewish immigrant. What part of Ireland did your folks come from? <laughs> Delancey Street, thank you. Other movies like High Gear and They Met in a Taxi have white actors portraying taxi drivers. These demographics would change just slightly in the 60s and 70s with the influx of Puerto Rican and black taxi drivers who are now driving alongside second and third generation Irish, Jewish, and Italian drivers. But to make the jump from that to a 95% immigrant workforce in the 90s, two big changes had to occur. The first was a big change in immigration policy thanks to the civil rights movement striking a blow against racist immigrant quotas. Until 1965, U.S. immigration policy was heavily biased in favor of Europeans, and in particular Northern and Western Europeans. So tens of thousands of immigrant visas were reserved for Northern and Western Europeans, while Southern and Eastern Europeans, and especially Asians and Africans and Middle Easterners, had very little chance to immigrate to the United States. They were discriminated against on the basis of their national origins. Uh, and there was a feeling uh, across the country and in Congress that it was time to end that discriminatory practice. So the 1965 Immigration Act abolished what had been a this national origin quota system that had been in place for more than 40 years. People from all countries... The Hart-Seller Act of 1965, as it's officially known, was a victory won out of the Civil Rights Movement, along with the 1964 Civil Rights and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, as these were efforts to break down racial segregation in state and federal policies. It took about a decade for the U.S. to feel the impact of this change, and as research by the Daily Conversation shows... In 1980, after Congress began granting more visas to people from the Western Hemisphere, the number of states where Mexico was the top country of origin doubled in a decade, becoming the dominant foreign-born population in the entire country. And in 1990, America began to look like the diverse country we live in today. Mexico was tops in 18 states, Dominicans were the largest group coming to New York, and South Korea and Southeast Asian nations were the leading countries of origin in seven states. In the year 2000 census, the number of Mexican-born immigrants surpassed 9 million. It's also notable that India was the top country of origin in three states. That's why we see the diversity in the taxi driver workforce of today. But that doesn't explain the 57% dropout of U.S.-born drivers altogether from the industry. That brings us to the second big change. The major shift between U.S.-born drivers and immigrant drivers doesn't start in the taxi industry until the 1980s, when the TLC reshaped the New York City taxi industry. Before 1979, drivers operated in what was essentially the familiar employer-employee relationship, complete with guaranteed wages, benefits, and union representation. But in 1979, the TLC introduced a leasing system which ended that. This changed the working relationship between drivers and owners overnight. Through the 1980s, garage and fleet owners pressured enough of their drivers into the leasing system. 
This transition mainly benefited those garage and large fleet owners because they could put the risk of operating taxis onto the drivers who are now contractors. Because they just like give us this title of independent contractor. We consider it as an independent contractor. And as an independent contractor, I mean, okay, like we don't have any responsibility or we don't have to give you any benefit. or Like me, I, I don't have like a medical insurance for 80 years, past 80 years, because I can't afford one. And plus, like, they're asking too much money. So I'm living without any medical. And I still am paying the penalties because I don't have, because I can't afford a medical insurance. So I have to pay the penalty, which is like, sounds very ridiculous thing. As independent contractors, they also lost a collective bargaining strength that gave taxi drivers union representation, benefits, and control over their own labor. The drop in pay and the radical changes to the drivers' working conditions discouraged many U.S.-born drivers from staying in the industry. But in their place was a growing number of immigrant workers. By the 1980s, significant numbers of Russian Jews leaving the Soviet Union took to driving a cab. And it wasn't until the 90s that South Asians became a dominant block of taxi drivers. As Russell Graham Gao Hodges states in The Social History of the New York City Taxi Cab Driver, in the mid-1990s, the number of Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshis applying for taxi licenses in New York City soared from 10% in 1984 to 43% in 1991. These immigration trends would continue, and by the mid-2000s, 8.5% of the taxi drivers were of African-Haitian origins. More recently, there's been a large segment of East Asian drivers concentrated in the app taxi sector. And that's some of the reasons we went from Irish cabbie Matt Nolan to Dopinder in Deadpool. Ah, Dopinder. Pool. Dead. Mm, nice. Smells good, no? Not the daffodil daydream. The girl. Ah, yes. Gita. Mm. She is quite lovely. She would have made me a very agreeable wife, but um, Gita's heart has been stolen by my cousin Bandhu. He is as dishonorable as he is attractive. Dopinder, I'm starting to think there's a reason I'm in this cab today. Yeah, so you called for it. They suggested me, so that's how. But I, I wasn't know like how to drive. So I used to work when I was a legal alien. I was working in upstate New York on a gas station, and there was a Hertz station. So the Hertz guy like told me when the cars come to drop off, you can park them and stuff like that for him. So I used to park the car and just like you know circle around sometime around the gas station. That's all I was new, and I thought I knew driving but in reality I wasn't new so when I came to the city I asked my friend I asked like you know I want to get a driving license he said do you know the driving I said I think I know how to drive <laughs> so so he took me to the drive and he asked me okay make a broken u-turn I say what's a broken u-turn and he just like have like this surprise on his face and then he said like okay let's do the parallel parking so like what is the parallel parking and he said like can I curse yeah sure. he said like fuck man you don't know how to drive <laughs> you can only drive straight that's all you can do 
So I thought, like, I thought I knew how to drive. So, like, you don't know shit. So, but I already have the appointment for driving test. So I went for the test, and of course I failed first time. And I was so upset. And after a few days, like, I I tried again with my other friend. <laughs> so, but I still like I don't know how I got my license because I went for the test, and and still I. I just believe in my mind that guy was blind, you know, who gave me the license because he was wearing these dark glasses and he was standing very fast position. He came said he said like straight drive this and that and and when he at the end when he said you're pass and I was so surprised I said like really <laughs> and that's how I got my license. Many of the poor South Asian migrants arriving to U.S. didn't mind the leasing system as much as U.S.-born drivers who worked under the commission system. To immigrant drivers, it made no difference which system they worked under, as long as they made enough money to send back home. Over a couple of decades of this dynamic, driving a taxi is done almost exclusively by immigrant labor. The shift in demographics marked a change in the relationship between the New York City government and the taxi driver workforce as well as the public's view of the everyday taxi driver. New York City in the 1970s was a tough place. And it was at the beginning of a violent transition from a city of small manufacturing and exports to a service and finance dominated economy. The city looked radically different 1970s New York City was being put through a fiscal crisis and business elites were using the crisis to roll back all the gains working class New Yorkers had won since World War II. Thousands of city union workers were laid off, social services plummeted, and the federal government refused to bail out the city. Hundreds of thousands of people, particularly white New Yorkers, left the dilapidated city to the suburbs in Long Island. 10% of the city's population, nearly a million people, had left throughout the 70s. But the city rebounded with the growth of the service economy and along with it, a significant influx of immigrant workers that helped stabilize the city's economy and propel the city's population past the 8 million mark. But this sort of superficial respect and recognition for immigrants in the city contradicts the growing xenophobia in the country. Thousands of criminal aliens pouring into our country. They're not people. These are animals. Our country will be overrun. These are animals. They're coming into our country. They're not people. These are animals. They're animals. What was the name? Animals. This puzzling contradiction and the growth of xenophobic hate has its roots here in New York City. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm never talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. That's Danny Glover in Sorry to Bother You. And in 1999, Danny Glover was pissed. At the time, Glover was frustrated trying to hail a cab while standing on Broadway. He was frustrated because no yellow cabs were stopping for him. He made a complaint to the TLC about cab drivers refusing to pick him up because he's a black man. The mayor of New York City at the time jumped on this opportunity to make a big splash for his US Senate run. He created Operation Refusal and explained his proposal at a press conference. It seems to me only fair to let, let them know that uh, there's going to be an intense effort. 
When we start this program, we'll start with summonses. One of the things that we're going to add to this to get everyone's attention is something that we're legally entitled to do, and it's a perfectly appropriate time to do it, and that is that we're going to take a cab. At that point, suspend your hack license. Since now you have a suspended hack license and you cannot drive your cab, we will take your cab away from you. Just think of the practical reality of it. We're suspending the license of the taxi driver on the spot. So who's going to drive the cab away? If the taxi driver drove the cab away, he would get another summons. Operation Refusal did two things. One, it eroded driver's due process rights. And two, turned the public against taxi drivers under the idea that drivers, largely immigrants, were anti-black. Giuliani's efforts to place a crosshair on the back of drivers was supposed to make him come across as tough on racism and willing to take extreme measures to improve the quality of life. As Bijou Matthews notes in his book, Taxi, Cabs and Capitalism in New York City, on the first day of its implementation, only seven out of more than 700 drivers tested were penalized for discrimination. That is, fewer than 1% of drivers proved to be racist. Statistically, it's true that drivers disproportionately refused to pick up black passengers or to take people to the outer boroughs, but Operation Refusal wasn't trying to reckon with the geographic reality of a racially segregated city. Why was he doing this? Because New York City was undergoing a demographic shift. The white flight of the 1970s and 80s was over and reversed by the 90s. It was a cynical use of anti-racism to further his political career, which in turn created a repressive machine against taxi drivers. Operation Refusal doesn't exist anymore, but it created a framework for policing immigrants. It's part of the same state repression that today goes by the name of broken windows. Broken windows is not an actual policy. It is what people consider a policing philosophy. And as a philosophy, it's reminiscent of Jim Crow policies and their function to police non-white citizens. So this cop stopped me and he write about five tickets, five big tickets, summons, you know. So I came out from the car, just to very polite, I said like, officer, what are you doing? What I did so wrong? Like, you know, you throw the poke and he said like, get back into your car or I'm going to arrest you, <laughs> you know. So th at that time, something shrank inside me, you know. And I, as I say, like, I just, like, cried, and I'm like, what I did wrong, I did nothing wrong, and I feel very unjustified and very angry and all that thing. That's particular incident I remember. Because I, I cry, I sit there and I cry, <laughs> because I was very young and I have this all emotional ideas about, like, soon as I got my citizenship and I received the letter and I believe that pursuing the happiness, so I thought, like, the life will be like, oh, pursuing the happiness means, like, it's gonna be justice, it's gonna be prosperity, it's gonna be like, you know, some something will be better. But in reality, it was just like, I, when I found out, like, I'm just a freaking another cow, you know, just to feed the fat government. That's all I felt at that time. This repression that we were seeing in New York City was happening on a national scale. In 1994, Bill Clinton, with bipartisan support, passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. This act escalated mass incarceration with provisions such as three strike laws, federal grants for cities to hire more police, federal prisons, death penalty expansion, enhanced penalties for quote-unquote smuggling undocumented immigrants, 
a follow-up act in 1996 called the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act did away with due process for immigrants and codified the criminalization of immigrant communities. In short, it became easier for the government to detain and deport people and made it harder for immigrants to prove that they have a moral and legal right to remain. On-duty NYPD officer Patrick Cherry, a detective on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, seen berating an Uber driver. Detective Cherry reportedly upset the driver had gestured at him to use his blinker while the officer was parking in an unmarked car. The tirade recorded by a passenger. Okay. Okay? Do you understand me? Yes, I, I don't know what planet you think I'm you're on right, right now. Officer slamming the car door even appearing to mock the driver's foreign accent. Stop it with your, for what, sir? For what, sir? Stop it with that How long have you been in this country? This incident between a Joint Terrorism Task Force officer berating an immigrant driver and the growth of Islamophobia isn't accidental. It's an example of how Islamophobia is cultivated and influenced by state repression. It wasn't only Muslim taxi drivers who felt targeted after 9-11. Islamophobes conflated people from all over South Asia as Muslims, despite their ethnic and religious diversity. Sikh taxi drivers were often targeted like this. I don't have any other qualifications, so it's better to drive and afford your family. Ravinder Singh is one of many taxi drivers in the city who are South Asian. Two out of every ten are Sikhs. Sometimes they called us Osama bin Laden. I think they are ignorant, so we... We don't want to say anything to them and just we close the door and come back. Ravinder says most people confuse Sikhs for Muslims because of the turbans. I think it's misidentification. People don't recognize the Sikhism. It's totally different than the Muslim people. Other cab drivers, like Satnam Singh, share similar sentiments. Just on the road I'm driving, they will say something bad words like uh, Bin Laden, or go back India like that they speak. It hurt me, because I'm not part of Osama bin Laden. We are very peaceful people and love this country. We are living, making a living here, growing up family. Both say dealing with racist remarks just comes with the job. That was from a news segment covering the Islamophobia Sikh drivers have to deal with in 2016, 15 years after 9-11. This anti-immigrant thread runs through Bush, Obama's, and now Trump's regime in the form of Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement, infamously known as ICE. What Bush started with ICE, Obama extended to every corner of the country. And Trump has fashioned ICE into a new American Gestapo against immigrants. An example of Trump's anti-immigrant repression is the attempted deportation of taxi driver Edison Barros. Barros got into an altercation when a driver almost ran over his dog while he was out walking him. Because of this, Barros was forced to appear in court where ICE took the opportunity to snatch him and throw him into a detention center. We appeal to your senses and duty to uphold the Constitution where everyone should have their day in court. Let Edison have his day in court. Let Edison be with his family. Detenido por ICE. Nos fue muy duro no saber que ya no iba a volver a la casa. Le pido a la jueza que nos deje quedar con nuestro papá, que nos dé de vuelta a nuestro papá. Si se va, 
no vamos a tener con quién hablar, con quién pedirle sugerencias. That was Edison's daughter speaking at a press rally in support of Barros and demanding that he be allowed to fight his deportation in court and allowed to stay. The scapegoating of immigrants has gone beyond New York City as Trump is trying to build his base with white nationalists by going after all immigrants in the U.S. Previous systematic attacks on immigrants, like Operation Refusal, in many ways paved the way for greater anti-immigrant sentiment that is now concentrated in the Trump regime. Even so-called progressives like Mayor Bill de Blasio embrace broken windows and so helps to keep this threat of repression alive. In fact, he said it himself in an interview with Pod Save America's host, D. Ray McKesson. Now let's talk about when you ran for mayor, one of the things you ran on was ending broken windows policing. You talked about making it a safer city for people in ways that didn't um, ramp up the disparities. I want, I want to clarify. What I wanted, to, I wanted to get away from the policing that existed previously. I wanted okay. to get away from the broken and unconstitutional policy of stop and frisk. Okay. I wanted to change the relationship between police and community. I believe quality of life policing, which I think is the better phrase than broken windows, because broken windows has some very understandably troubling associations in people's minds. Quality of life policing is necessary, and I've been in favor of that all along. And what's the difference between broken windows and quality of life it policing? Is, it, uh, it is similar vein, but different associations is bluntly what I'd say. But this is the part that matters. I think broken windows policing got a bad name in part because it was associated with the Giuliani administration. There's a lot of reasons to be highly critical of the Giuliani administration. But I think the underlying principle was the right principle. This superficial change to what is essentially the same policing philosophy broadened into collaboration between police departments and ICE. In New York City, this collaboration is supposed to be limited, but ICE still roams the city snatching immigrants from courthouses and job sites without much challenge from the de Blasio administration. This is how today, mass incarceration and border security became a bipartisan project, supposedly based on national security. Because of their immigrant background, taxi drivers have become accustomed to the state repression. They have become the butt of jokes by the public, like Dopinder and Deadpool, and misunderstood charges against taxi drivers keeps them marginalized, while politicians have used them as scapegoats for building their own credibility. When I came to America, I was illegal alien. So I always have like this daydreaming. I thought like I'm going to be going to America and I'm going to become like, you know, I will go to Hollywood. I'm going to be a great actor, you know, and this and that. All this like was a dreaming. But like practical life is different. Once you enter, you start like, you know, <laughs> rushing for food and shelter and clothing. That's And the whole family, of course, where we're from, like the entire family is like, I'm the richest person in my family, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so then I got stuck, you know. So I just, my personal dreams was about the life. I just locked them and just, you know, throw the key. Looking back, what Operation Refusal, Broken Windows policies, and the ICE crackdown have in common is that they are posed by those in power as the only solution to social tensions. But Danny Glover knew this wasn't true. After he had complained to the TLC about not getting picked up because he's black, he decided to meet with taxi drivers directly and sought out a meeting with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. What came out of this collaboration was a full list of proposals put forward to the TLC. They included, as B.G. Matthews points out in his book, 
that all new drivers be trained by veteran drivers and civil rights activists, that the TLC reckon with transportation redlining practices, and that drivers not be penalized for accepting out-of-borough fares at peak times. The TLC, of course, ignored all these suggestions and continued their approach to fighting racism through entrapment, revoking licenses, and essentially punishing drivers by taking away their rights to due process. This isn't to excuse the pervasiveness of anti-black racism in countries where many of the drivers are from, nor their actions in refusing to take fares. But this process allowed drivers to be open, honest, and yes, defensive at times, but it revealed a more complicated reality about what it's like to drive in one of the most racially segregated cities. During the town halls organized between Danny Glover and the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, drivers often told stories of how their work forced them to navigate the city through overlapping roads of race and class. The harsh demands of paying for a lease forced many taxi drivers to refuse to pick up fares who they assumed lived in the outer boroughs. Their racism was a reflection of New York City's refusal to reckon with its history of racial segregation, and thus with its unequal system of public transportation. It was more complex than just personal prejudice. It was a result of racist city planning and economic pressures compelling drivers and surely with elements of racial prejudice to make the decision to not pick up black passengers an easy one. This reality continues and so continues the use of this issue by politicians and corporations to undermine taxi drivers. Uber took advantage of this dynamic to set the stage for their own opportunistic seizure of the taxi industry in 2015. It has made it difficult for taxi drivers to come together and respond to dramatic changes to their political rights and working conditions. When I started back then, there was like a free toners. There was like, you know, it was demand and supply thing was going on. So like drivers, we used to stand in the line for hours and at the end, you just like you don't know you're gonna get cab you're gonna get have a job or not and fleet owners have like very high nose and all this ego problems and all the things was going on so they treated us literally like a you know slum dogs or something very ill-treated and that's that's brought a lot of anger between me and a lot of drivers we went all through that you know they have an upper hand and we were like this, you know, the kind of beggar, begging for a job, it's up to them. And they used to pick with their finger, you know, favoritism and then dispatchers, they have their own issues. To, you have to bribe them, which is called tip, but it's a bribery in reality. Whoever bribe more gonna get the job. So th that was the back then, you know, so standing in the line and sometimes like you stand a couple of hours and then you go back home empty handed because, oh, I didn't got a job today. Being treated like slum dogs and enduring bad working conditions created by the garage and fleet owners naturally creates discontent among the taxi drivers. They begin to see themselves as Ali explains. And because they used to be there like, for the we were like, they have a concept of the driver as a cow. You can milk as much as you want, you know. You just shove your foot in this cow and you can milk as much as you want. So cops used to stop us. The TLC, they have like this clause out. And whenever they stop you, you more than you, you're scared to get robbed or jacked by some thug, we were used to scared from the police and taxi and limousine commission. 
factors. They're going to stop you and they never write one ticket. They will write you five or six tickets at a time. So when you go to the judge, they will forgive you two tickets so you feel better. But other four you are paying whole months sometime pay. So that was like always in justified ticketing and everything was there. And then it's a discontent aimed at their bosses, but it doesn't stop there. It gets directed at those who seem to side with the garage and fleet owners. After a while, then I just got used to, oh, this is the part to getting robbed by police and Fed government. Because after all, we are here to feed the Fed government. General public, the purpose of general public is, you know, we just born and raised. So we can just run this big fat, you know, system. Their big pensions and their lavish chair and lifestyle and their, <laughs> you know, their extravagance lifestyle and their lobster dinners and wine. That's all we are here for. And then the things got like with the help of the union, you know, we got a lot of help. New York Taxi Worker Alliance helped to just to, to bring this job some dignity. Union power! Driver power! Driver power! Driver power! Driver power! All these obstacles, and still, taxi drivers are organizing together. For the driver's right. And today we are standing in front of the mayor office, in front of the old city council's office, right there. They can see from their window. They can hear from us. They can see from us. But still change is not coming. We need to change. Mayor is right there. Mayor listening to us, mayor can see us, mayor can feel us, everything he can feel. The feelings had come four years, five years ago when we started. The situation getting worse, financial problem getting worse, driver is not earning enough. We wanted cap, we wanted limited car. And we made so much protest. We went to protest in Albany. We went to protest in City Hall. We went to protest in TLC. Nobody cared us until we lose our five brothers. Then the thinking, the change need to be done. Then the mayor start talking, change need to be done. Governor coming out, change needs to be done. But when? This isn't what happened in 2015, when de Blasio found himself in a losing battle with Uber to cap their growth. He could have called for town halls of taxi drivers and given them a platform to cut through Uber's propaganda campaign and appeal to the public for support. Instead, de Blasio prioritized his own reputation and gave Uber free reign to implement their strategy to overwhelm the taxi industry. You know, and then this app company suddenly show up and they change the whole persona, whole like predicament is changed now. So that's a bad change. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit more about what you think about all of these Uber drivers and app drivers that are, I mean, quite frankly, fr flooding the streets now with all of the, their cars? 
thing is that like by the law law of the land and law on the books they're doing nothing wrong they're allowed you know a lot of yellow cab drivers when the uber started we thought okay finally god sended us the way out some freedom to us from these fleet owners and these thugs and these criminal like gangs who are running this industry we're going to have finally going to be we don't have like this restriction of medallion so we can just buy the car and drive and just live with the dignity and so a lot of drivers have migrated a lot of yellow cab drivers thought that's a promised land and i was going to go too and then of course like then this uber they did like they start chopping the prices to destroy the whole industry and now the uber drivers are crying too they're flooding the streets yes they do but unemployment is so high in america people's fine like the job like it's a job at the end of the day at least you're going to have some food on table so they're flooding the streets yes they do but they are our brothers you know they're not doing anything wrong they try to be survive just like us a unionized taxi workforce would be a powerful force in new york city all of the taxi drivers make up more than 130,000 workers in total and the majority of them live in the outer boroughs giving this union potentially outsized political power such an organization would be a loud and powerful voice for immigrant communities they could be crucial in fights to expand immigrant civil and political rights they would also push the city government to take even stronger stances for immigrant workers there are many challenges to the development of unity among the taxi drivers beyond the legal obstacles and a government hostile to their very existence their dispersion amongst the different sectors of the taxi driver force These various issues frustrate the creation of a taxi drivers union. But what's interesting is that the very same factors that make it so hard to organize all the taxi drivers is also what could be one of their greatest strengths. A union of the most disenfranchised, exploited and marginalized in New York City. Like the oppressed and all of its elements united in organization. And and for the yellow cab, I think this is this is the end of yellow cab era. is fine eventually is going to be just if the way the things are is going to be completely die down before the yellow cabs disappear from new york city immigrant drivers the drivers who are never featured alongside their cabs in all the imagery of new york city are joining together to address these issues it is still unknown unknown reason what is the unknown the city council know it governor know it mayor know it and you guys going to be weakness to the world that driver is dying with the financial crisis each of the driver have a family children is called boy children their members they fitting there are 40 years 50 years they run this city millions of people ride on the car We lose five brother in a five month in a row. Give me the justice. When this justice going to be served? When this people going to wake up? When the city council going to be listen to us? When the mayor going to be listen to us? Do they want more our brother take their life because of their financial policy? What is the financial policy? The Wall Street financial policy. but 180,000 driver is under poverty they cannot bring the food 
on their table. They cannot feed their children. There are drivers who sleep on the sidewalk. There is a driver sleep on the taxi. There is a driver sleep in the Uber car. 17, 18, 20 hours. Don't they feel that they have a family? They have a children need to be seen? Don't they feel that we are human beings? It is not the innovation. It is not the gig economy. It is the killing, mashing of human beings. And we are victimized today. And we are standing in front of the city hall, city council. Let them know we are here. We cannot take it anymore. We cannot lose our brother anymore. Unlike 2015, taxi drivers have been able to secure a cap on additional Uber and Lyft vehicles through their own self-activity. Unfortunately, we're out of time for now. Join us for episode three when Carlos and Julian report on the history of New York City taxi drivers and their efforts to organize themselves and how taxi drivers were able to beat back Uber and Lyft in 2018. As always, this is Leah in Solidarity.